Okay, looks like we're at uh, 6.30. We can go ahead and get started if you like. So we'll jump back into, into Matthew's Gospel at chapter 18, looking at the fourth discourse of Matthew. Remember, there's five discourses. These discourses are these large sections in which Jesus teaches on various topics. And Matthew 18 comprises the fourth of these discourses, often referred to as the Discourse on the Church. And it's in that context that we find two parables, the parable of the lost sheep, which we covered last week. And uh, tonight, again, we'll look at the material that falls between the parables. But tonight we'll be looking at the parable of the unforgiving servant. That'll draw this um, discourse to a close. And then we'll be on to some other of the parables in Matthew's gospel. Before we start, let's have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you would enlighten our hearts and minds by your word and spirit, that we might rightly understand your word and apply it to our lives in such a way that we ever see Christ as our one and only and true Savior, indeed the Savior of the world, and that we would rejoice in all sorrows and all trials knowing that we are not under these crosses by accident or in vain, but by your good purposes that you would conform us into the image of your beloved Son in thought, word, and deed. We ask your blessing upon these men, upon their families at home, and upon this time of our study. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so those of you online, if you could uh, just mute um, quick, and that way I won't uh, be distracted. But if you do have a question, feel free to unmute and yammer, or if you wave, make big motions so you can catch my eye. I'm happy to have you all participate, and thank you for joining us. So at Matthew chapter 18, maybe the key take-home, again, just trying to recontextualize ourselves, I suppose, you can see that this section is about the church, Jesus' concern for the least, and his concern that uh, the little ones who believe in his name, regardless of age, but of course here there are two different words, pideon and micron, used uh, to denote those of young age. And so if you look at verse 6, but whoever causes one of these little ones, these micron who believe in me to sin, but we're going to make a distinction here along the lines of the original language. And that's going to, you're going to see why that's very important as we turn into the new material today. So this word is the scandalise, the scandal word. And this is to fall. That's, it's a, a scandalizo is something that I fall over. And so This is not simply a sin. This is that which, this is apostasy. Thus, Jesus' extreme statement that it would be better to have a millstone fastened around one's neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea than to cause one of these little ones who believe in me to no longer believe in me. Okay, and we see that similar use of the scandalon, scandalizo, scandalize language all throughout uh, from verse 16 all the way through verse 9. That continues to be the use. So with all of the 
language of plucking out your eyes and cutting off your hands, that's not just committing any little old sin, but is rather apostasy. So, again, maybe to summarize, you don't want, Christ does not want you to cause anyone else who believes in him to fall away. Christ does not want you to fall away. Then the parable of the lost sheep is, if one does fall away, what ought to be the church's attitude toward that one? And that is the parable then of the shepherd who has a hundred sheep, one of them goes astray. He leaves the 99 in search of the one that goes astray. And when he finds it, he rejoices over it. And verse 14 then summarizes the intent. So it is not the will of my father who is in heaven, that one of these micron little ones should perish. All right, that's a summary of Uh, where we left off, and now we're going to turn into the next intervening section before we get to the parable of the unforgiving servant. Before we do, any thoughts, any questions hanging from those verses? All right, so then jumping into the verses that are probably most familiar to you in Matthew 18. Matthew 18 is even shorthand for these verses. And they have to do with uh, the topic frequently called church discipline. But you're going to see that it's concern for the soul and how to pursue the brother who is wandering, potentially wandering away. If your brother sins against you, same English word, but different Greek word. And now you can see the point. This isn't if your brother scandalizes you, causes you to fall away from the faith, but an entirely different concept and the one we're more familiar with, hamartise, hamartia. If your brother sins against you, what do you do? Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Why do you think between you and him alone? Not for public consumption, just you two having a problem. Right, not for public consumption. You don't want to publicize the sin of your brother. You want to go directly to him. To publicize his sin without going directly to him would be a form of breaking. Which commandment do you think? I thought I heard it. Eighth, yeah, bearing false witness. Uh, Yeah, gossiping, bearing false witness, not explaining everything in the kindest way. So Jesus says, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Better to not bring other parties in either, because that's that may well be counterproductive at this point. If he's got a, he may want to try to save face. It's much easier if somebody comes to you individually and personally. You can look them in the eye and say, "I'm sorry." There's no cost to your reputation. But if you come initially, or if somebody comes at you initially with a group of people, maybe there's that desire to protect one's reputation. So we see a lot of wisdom here, spiritual and psychological, in our Lord's admonition. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And that, too, speaks to the intent with which we would go and tell him his fault. It's ultimately to gain him, to restore him, 
not to be punitive, not to discipline per se, just to mend the breach, to regain your brother. And there I think too, you can see the sense in which your brother is lost or has wandered away, not unlike the sheep that preceded, that had gone astray. So to pursue your brother in order to regain or gain him. All right, verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. All right, this coming right out of the Old Testament law, that any matter of truth would be established on the basis of two or three witnesses. And of course, done after your attempt to reconcile one-on-one has failed. Okay, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now, it is interesting that Jesus, of course, foresees his church. He foresees his ecclesia and is already speaking to this future reality. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Does one commune with Gentiles and tax collectors? No. So there's the excommunication. Paul spells this out in 1 Corinthians 3 very clearly with a brother who's engaged in gross and public sexual immorality. And Paul says, do not even eat with such a person. But the point also, of course, um, we might add would be, how does the Lord uh, treat Gentiles and tax collectors as those who must be converted? And so it's not as though we give up on them per se, but rather through this final act of excommunication from the church, a formal statement that you're no longer a Christian, you're a Gentile, you're a tax collector. Which, of course, a tax collector is kind of a loaded term. The tax collectors were kind of seen as uh, turncoats, as rebels, as serving the enemy. And so that's probably what's in view here is that kind of usage that he was once your brother, but he's demonstrated that he's not any longer. So he's a kind of turncoat. <laughs> so it, it's, it's ultimately to shock him into repentance that the entire church has seen this. The entire church has judged this. And he and his stubbornness still persists. Now, how time-consuming do you think this is? Like, could this all be done in an afternoon? Maybe a weekend? So that's, I think that that's part of the inherent uh, reality of this is, I mean, man, if you're going to do this against every brother who sins against you, you're going to need a, you're going to need a flow chart. <laughs> some, some, yeah, some different computer programs to track your progress on all of it, maybe. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, did we assume that uh, if he listens to you, means that he accepts that he has sinned against you? Yeah, or you've come to some kind of reconciliation. 
yeah, you've come to some kind of reconciliation. It's more than say, oh, I listen to you, but I disagree. I don't Mm-hmm. Yeah, and sometimes, um, you know, sometimes. So, so objectively speaking, if there's a sin involved, and you know, this is this is good to do in all your vocations and all your relationships. What is the sin that has been committed against me? What is the commandment that has been broken? Because if you don't get that, you might not. You might be dealing with feelings, and that's a different thing. And none other. I mean, feelings are important. They are what they are. But you might approach your brother with, so this is what happened, and this is the commandment that broke, or that was broken, and this is why I haven't been able to get over it. I know I'm supposed to overlook every sin I can, but this is one I can't overlook, and here's why. Okay. Um, Now, ahead of time, or in the process of the discourse, maybe it is the case that a commandment isn't broken, and a sin isn't, isn't done. You could still then say, but offense was given or offense was taken. And maybe there's, you know, there's times, there's times where offense is given or taken. And well, that's the right thing to do. I mean, Jesus offends people all the time. So there, but there's also a time where, you know, offense is given or taken and it's just not, it's not important. It's not what was intended. And so sometimes reconciliation can take on that form too, but there's just an acknowledgement by both parties that there wasn't actually sin committed, but there was offense given. You could say, I mean, that's a pretty low bar for us as Christians to say, Hey, I'm sorry that by my words or by my actions, I offended you, even though they weren't inherently sinful, they obviously caused you offense and pain. And I'm, I apologize for that. There's no need for that. You know, there's no need for you to be offended. Uh, it's not all, always or necessarily our posture. Obviously, as I mentioned, Jesus sometimes finds it necessary to offend people, and we do too. You know, if people are offended by the truth or something like that, then you know, he, nothing you can do about that. Yeah. So again, I think the point by this protracted process is again, it's it's to illustrate to us that you know, when your brother sins against you and you're going to go through this process, it's got to be a sin you can't get over. It's got to be a sin that's caused some sort of major breach um, or a sin that uh, maybe even it would be the kind of sin that uh, even if you can get over, you realize that it's going to have devastating consequences for them if you don't bring it up. They're going to continue along that path or something, right? Uh, Maybe they steal something from you and you go, Ah, what's a hundred bucks? I'm just going to let him go. Then you get to thinking, yeah, but if they get away with that and keep doing that, it's going to get worse and worse. And so that's where you might confront them and say, look, right? So again, you're, you're, you've got your brother's best interest in mind. Yeah. I'm not trying to dilute this, but how does forgiveness enter into this? How does it play in this? Yeah, it's a great point. So as soon as your brother is repented, I mean, it's implied and if it, or it's it's not stated at all in the text. It's just implicit as as church, as Christians. As soon as your brother acknowledges this, you've gained him, you forgive him. There, there's the repent or there's the forgiveness. Yeah, that goes. And we should be ready to extend that. Yeah. And as much as possible, we should, you know, in the same way we, we embrace that language of um I've sinned against you, or you've sinned against me. I forgive you, or please forgive me. You know, that's all very healthy, normal ways for Christians to speak. And you know, we need to remember our theology here. I know we all have egos. We all have, 
you know, pride and that kind of thing. Uh, it's helpful to remember that we all stand up in the sanctuary every Sunday morning and say, I, a poor, miserable sinner. Now, if we're doing that in vain, <laughs> there's a problem. But if we mean that, uh, then there shouldn't, then that really, that really de-escalates things in terms of the ego, doesn't it? It's like, hey, yeah, I confessed to that on Sunday, and now here I've obviously offended you. We, you know, we shouldn't be surprised if we sin against other people, if we hurt other people. Um, that's that's part and parcel of knowing who we are um, as sinners. So, yeah, things. I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of humility that can be worked um, through a process like this, as well as the forgiveness, the reconciliation, making things right all of the above, you know, and sometimes that's an important part of the process too. Sometimes reconciliation, um, how, how that is to say, how is this made right? Or how is this not going to happen in the future? That's a, that's a very valid part of it. You don't condition forgiveness upon that. Um, forgiveness is granted freely. Uh, but I, again, with the idea that forgiveness is an aspect of love and serves love so is that reconciliation an aspect of love and serves love so you know a treasure of the church and you know embezzles some some and is caught and is approached and uh, he acknowledges it he's willing to return it or maybe he's got to pay it back over time there's forgiveness extended but there's also a matter of reconciliation that he's not going to serve as the treasurer again. <laughs> so that would be out of love for him and love for the community, love for the church, right? So there's an element of reconciliation. The forgiveness isn't conditioned upon it, but the reconciliation is, in fact, necessary. Does that make sense? Yeah, please. Well, this is helpful to me to, to sort out these differences in sins, which you have a, the Ten Commandments, and then the other is offenses or feelings, like you said. And a lot of times it's, you didn't speak kindly to me or something like that. Yeah. Or you ignored me when you walked by me. Let's say it's in the church hallway or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I appreciate your comment that there's different ways to handle that then, because that's feelings and offenses are easily taken care of by saying that wasn't my intention i apologize if you understood it that way etc yeah 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 Yeah, it's a really helpful paradigm uh to just think of offense the giving and taking of offense and by the way i mean it doesn't only have its application in the sphere of the church proper but this is a an especially helpful one in dealing with your wives (laughs) it's one that crops up uh in marital conflict when i do marital counseling and um, sometimes it's uh, you come to an intractable point of uh, this is a sin that, you know, no, it's not. And that kind of thing. And, OK, can we settle on the language of offense given and offense taken? Well, yeah, we can settle on that. Good. We can affect a reconciliation. Right. So just kind of a way of de-escalating things. Yeah. Yeah. Good category. OK, um, then at, uh, are we are we OK to move on? Yeah, please. I mean, the heading here is uh, your brother sins against you. So, like, put the example of your brother stealing from you, that would be dealt with here. But say your brother steals from somebody else, and then you, I mean, is it implying like mind your own business, you know? Uh, or is it just doesn't cover it here? Yeah. Mm, I mean, yeah. 
I mean, I, I would say there is more like you are your brother's keeper. Here we're talking about a fellow Christian. And so if you saw that, you would you would want to address that with him. I think so. I mean, as a, yeah, in that case, I think so. There, Yeah, there's going to be exceptions to this. I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, there's going to be exceptions to this. If if somebody uh, jumps you, if a fellow Christian jumps you and beats you up in the parking lot, there's going to be a different way of approaching this than you go to him alone and see if he can do it to you again. Right? Well, I think we might have another approach too, Pastor. Oh, yeah. Just... So somebody who does that, I'm going to come and get you guys and we're going to go beat that guy up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that'll make good. And then he can, and then he can forgive us. <laughs> <laughs> the faith is right. syndicated, <laughs> breaking knees again. Yeah. Well, yeah. So I, I, I mean, I think that that illustrates a fair enough point. That look, as as is the case with so many of Jesus' teachings, he's not instant. He's not interested in creating bylaws here and covering every possible scenario. These are general principles, and through these general principles, usually we can put together our heads as Christians and come to some way in which we can uh, go at this in a Christian manner. You know, it's, um, there's, so if you're really, really interested in this, um, Luther on the fourth commandment, but particularly on the eighth commandment in the large catechism is going to have a really good understanding of this because he adds in the element of office and how these words apply uh, these words are are primarily written to us as individual christians as uh, royal priests but if you hold an office uh then it's different so if um you know if you see let's just use the example of uh, of chris you know if you see your brother sin you know maybe he's stolen something Okay, it's one thing for you to handle that. But if you're a police officer and you see you have an office, you have to deal with that differently. Right. Um, If if I'm if I'm a a pastor and I hear false doctrine being preached here, taught here or something, it's incumbent upon me to address that in a different way that it's incumbent upon the average parishioner to address that. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's this office and this jurisdiction that kind of comes into play, too. So. I won't go into the whole thing. I just commend uh, the large catechism, particularly uh, commandment eight, but secondarily commandment four, if you want to get into all this. Okay. So um, we're left with, yeah, ultimately um, they must be uh, to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Then verse 18, amen, or truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. So this is serious business. I mean, because if the church corporately follows Matthew 18, I mean, these words are incredible and they're serious. And I don't think many Christians believe them today, but that doesn't mean they're not true. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And and worth noting, of course, that the you is plural. (laughs) And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Usually taken to um, you've you've bound the sin upon this person. You've bound 
um, the judgment upon this person, or you've loosed them from your sins, you've loosed them from uh, their sentence. That's generally how that language is taken. Verse 19, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask. Now, the you is a little interesting. Um, if you if you go back to verse 1, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus. So is this talking about disciples as such? Is this talking about um, pastors as such? Probably um, this is talking about a church, and even if the church consisted only of two, that's probably what's meant here. But you can see how that might um, might be opportunity for some discussion. Certainly, it's not the case that if if two people, you know, sitting at coffee, both have it out for, let's say, Ralph, and they just decide they're going to excommunicate Ralph themselves. Uh, that's not that's not what Christ is saying is in fact binding on in heaven. All right, so this would be two as church, I think, agreeing on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So that that also functions as the definition of church. You know, two or three Christians. I don't want to draw out too much there. Much more could be drawn out, I think, um, from that text and especially from those last lines. But our point really here is to get gain the context for which Christ uh, employs or in which Christ employs the parable of the unforgiving servant. So anything else on that section of Matthew 18? Just yeah, please. Yeah. I think it can be. Um, it's very clear that in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul is talking about a kind of shunning. And Paul is talking about a kind of punitive disciplinary thing. Now, I mean, boy, can that be taken too far? I mean, gosh. I, I And you think of other religions, too, where like, like children are shunned or something and they can't even be in their own, you know, in their home or something like that. So yeah, there's, um, I think, let me answer your question as straightforwardly as I can. I think that those things are left as possibilities to be determined culturally, to be determined via time and place and norms of society. Uh, but yes, they're, there may be a time in which um, shunning could be appropriate. That's very clearly in 1 Corinthians 3 what Paul is advocating for. It's just unavoidable. When he says not even to eat with such a person, he's not speaking of the Lord's Supper per se. He's talking about all kinds of eating, period, any kind of table fellowship. Um, Of course, the Lord's Supper would be included in that as the height of all table fellowship. But again, you're thinking in a culture where, I mean, I don't know, wouldn't you just about eat with anyone in this culture? I pr- I probably would. I mean, you know, you're not making that distinction. So um, in a culture where that distinction is made, you only eat with those you are on good terms. You only, you know, if you live in a culture where anybody who eats at my table is effectively my family, then you could see why it would be necessary in that context to say, don't even eat with such a person. 
Does that mean that we need to follow that by the letter here? I, I'm unconvinced of that. I don't, you know, I don't think that that's probably the case. Well, I think we already touched on it, but one desired outcome is that the brothers can. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. The other would be that other brothers not be drawn into the sin, mm -hmm. or are we sure they have that in the end as a result? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, I mean, those two desired outcomes probably factor into how you would shun when you would shun. Yeah, exactly. So if you need to do it to protect the brothers, then... Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, great point. Great point. And you, yeah, you bring up, you bring up a wonderful, I mean, not only is this in order to win, ultimately, the brother and to restore him, but this is also for the good of the body of Christ, that the whole body, because sin has a certain contagiousness to it. Uh, it's amazing how divorced women multiply each other. <laughs> Uh, sin has a certain contagion to it, and uh, it is it is important for the church to have a functioning immune system. Say, hey, there is a line; don't cross it. This is stuff we don't do. Um, yeah, in our uh, it's hard to do. I mean, it's very hard to do in our in our present day and age. Usually, because if some as soon as somebody gets a whiff that they've sinned or run afoul of the church or that they're going to has any consequences, what do they do? Yeah. Yeah, I suddenly feel like a Methodist today. Just go become a Methodist, go to the next nearest church. So in a sense, that is church discipline. It's just self-imposed on their part. It really carries a heavy spiritual burden with it. Um, but yeah, it's why it, it's by and large why. And I, I mean, I, I remember being a young pastor and being like, we don't do Matthew 18. Nobody does Matthew 18. Did this part of the Bible fall out or what? I mean, uh, what's up with this? But, uh, you know, as I, as a, just spend years and years and you just realize that before you come to anything remotely close to Matthew 18, the person's already gone. That's kind of the sad fact. Oh. Oh, Pastor, on the subject of treat them like a Gentile in the past, but it does bring to mind uh, chapter, uh, Matthew 9, uh, verse 10, where Jesus is defining at the table with the tax collectors and the Pharisees. Mm -hmm. Why do you do this? Well, the king called righteous, not the righteous, but sinners. Mm -hmm. So, and that's both. And then here's Matthew, who's the tax collector, mentioning both of these accounts. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I would, I would, there, there are people who read this in a tricky kind of way. And what they end up doing is they end up being like, okay, a Gentile and tax collector, that means you should go eat with them all the time and welcome them into table fellowship all the more. It's like, that's clearly not the point in this context. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think the furthest we want to go with your point is Jesus recognizes them as people who need converting, as people who are in impenitent sin. So in that sense, we should treat them that way. Yeah, they should be... A, excluded from the Christian church and the communion of the church. Uh, but we should continue to reach out with, to them the way we reach out to everyone, which is law and gospel and yeah, proclamation of the truth over and against the lies of the world. <laughs> it's ultimately all love and care for the person that's, you know, and love and care for the body as David brought up. That's a, such a great point. And what we don't often think about is that it's not just about the, the sinner or the sinned against, but it's about the health and well-being of the whole body. And that's that continuing communication. It's a brick wall, and then potentially the shunning aspect would emerge. Yeah. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. I think it could. 
I think it could. I think kind of anything's on the table there. Um, maybe even the nature of the sin involves the shunning too, you know? Um, I mean, I'll just give you a, an example. It's like, we've had people come to faith and they're not Lutherans and they have no intention on of actually learning what a Lutheran is, but every chance they get, they're on the patio proselytizing. And it's like, Hey, I mean, you get a couple warnings with that before it's like, yeah, you're shunned. <laughs> you're not actually welcome to sit in the service or have anything to do because you're a wolf breaking into the flock just trying to steal. And so there there would be maybe an example where, where shunning would take place. But you, know, you could think of other examples, too, no doubt, um, where that would be the appropriate thing to do, either corporately on a church campus or even in fellow Christian homes, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Follow-up question. Uh, when I was younger, I remember there was a term where you would, when you would transfer from one church to another, one Lutheran church to another, there was a letter that you took. Mm-hmm. Is that practice that says you, you left one church in good, good standing? Mm-hmm. Is that done now or is that been now? Yeah, I know it continues, but um, it, it's really based on the pastor of that particular congregation. So that is something we do um, is, yeah, if you're transferring to us uh, from a Lutheran church, we also, you know, yeah, but you can imagine how an, uh, how a pastor who's maybe unscrupulous would just say, we'll take you no matter what. And that's a big problem. Yeah, that's a big problem. So I, I am uh, I, I am actually, uh, this is something I would commend our local Lutheran churches at doing. By and large, we let each other know, hey, so-and-so has been coming here. Um, everything okay? Uh, and and or um, waiting until that person actually wants to transfer, and then you send out your request or make the phone call to that pastor. Everything okay? Um, that's yeah, generally a good thing. And uh, some and sometimes the answer there too. I mean, this is where it's not all um, it's not all cut and dried. Sometimes the the pastoral answer is, well, things really aren't okay. Let's put our heads together and talk about it because maybe it's good that they land there anyway. <laughs> you know, um, because sometimes people. You know, sometimes it's it's less about a material issue and more about the fact that they just don't like you or something, right? And and if, you know, they just don't like you as a pastor and they want to go to this other church. Okay. Sometimes sometimes that manifests itself in like kind of fake fights and fake accusations, and it's really just that they don't like you and they're looking for a way out. And you kind of want to just say, "Hey, there was an easier way." Just say so you prefer to go to this church, you know. <laughs> Uh, but at any rate, whatever, that usually gets sorted out amongst the pastors. And it really is kind of a nice thing we still have in this, even in this circuit. Yeah. Okay, um, all good? All right. So then, uh, it's it's in this context that Matthew records the parable of the unforgiving servant. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me? Now, this language is exactly parallel to verse 15, is it not? If your brother sins against you. So here's the forgiveness side of things. How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. And as Vicar recently preached, there's a, yeah, there's kind of rabbinical tradition that said three, 
So seven times. Peter's probably thinking he's being pretty gracious here. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but sometimes it's seven times seven or 70 times seven. The transcripts get a little tricky there, but either way, Jesus points the same, like more than you can keep track of. They didn't have Excel back then. So just had to let it go. (laughs) All right. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. All right. So very often the king would um, set his servants or slaves over a certain, you know, I I don't know, you're over the grain, you're over the wine, whatever the case may be, right? Um, You're going to make sure it's all growing. You're going to make sure it's um, profitable. So this king wishes to settle accounts with his servants, their stewardship over his property. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. So this is an impossible amount to pay back. And you can have all kinds of different estimates ranging here. It doesn't matter. It's just impossible to pay back. I mean, frankly, it's it's impossible to get into this much debt. I mean, the king would have... This is, a, this is an element of almost all of Jesus' parables. Almost all of them have some ridiculous part that probably if you were hearing it for the first time, you'd chuckle or, you know, raise your eyebrows or something. Uh, we just miss it because they're so well-worn and familiar to us. But this is one of those. I mean, it's just, uh, it's it's almost as if he says a bazillion dollars, you know, like, okay, how did he get in that much debt? Who knows? And since he could not pay his master, uh, since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children, all that he had in payment to be made. Now, this all seems like um, this is so different than our justice system. We have a tendency immediately to sympathize with the servant as opposed to with the master. And that is precisely how we misread the parable. Because all he's doing is in the ancient world liquidating this guy to try to recover whatever assets he can. And all of this is legal, moral, perfectly socially acceptable. At this point, we're sympathizing, um, or Jesus intends for us to continue sympathizing with the king who's got built out of a bazillion dollars by this unfaithful servant. And he's just liquidating him to try to get back, to try to get back what he can. Okay. So again, don't. Don't feel sympathy at this point. If you do, you're reading it or hearing it in an anachronistic way. 26. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Sometimes preachers peck on this, like, oh, he's a works righteous guy. Look at him. But (laughs) what else is he supposed to say? Just let it go. I mean, you would go like, well, no, I don't think I will. Uh, so the, so I think this is actually a noble, repentant kind of response. I mean, again, he doesn't have much uh, other response to have. And I think that that might be a preaching point. When the law is leveled against any one of us, we have nothing to say. Except to just beg. So he says, um, be patient with me. I'll repay you everything. 
Verse 27, again, to show that this isn't insolence or some sort of wrong-headed response per se, the, uh, the king, the master, has pity on him. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. All right, so there's act one in the parable. And of course, this has probably been preached to you so many times that you would, you would uh, in all likelihood, see yourself as this servant who owes God an immeasurable debt and God forgives you. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. Um, I think that that's, that's exactly right. I would, I would challenge you with, with this, of course. Uh, initially, we're talking about the forgiver, aren't we? Peter's question is, you know, how many times can I sin against you, God, and are you, Jesus, and you'll forgive me? That's a different question. But really, uh, Peter's in the position of the forgiver. So act one is, hey, there's this king who ends up being a forgiver. Peter says, what, seven times? Should I forgive him a little bit of debt? Jesus says, no, seven times, 70. And then he tells this king who forgives an impossible debt. So if you want to be like the king, then you want to forgive like the king. And so there, too, um, even though we can put ourselves in the place of the debtor, and there's nothing wrong with that, it's a very good reflection. It's exactly the right reflection. Um, it does it does behoove us to pay attention to the construction of the text and the construction of the parallel um, that we would see ourselves as the forgivers here. Okay, Act 2 begins at verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Now, that's a sizable amount. Again, a denarii is like a day's wage. So you could say three months wage or whatever. But so it's a substantial amount. Uh, It's potentially an amount that could be paid back. It'd be very hard. It'd take a long time. And I think what our Lord's doing in a really genius way is like, I mean, this is analogous to a a sin that hurts. You know, this is a significant sin, if you will. A significant debt has been accrued. It's not insignificant. That's an interesting thing. Jesus doesn't say, hey, you should forgive because after all, sins don't carry any weight. That's not what he says. You know, as I kind of sometimes like to preach, you can pack an awful lot of hell in a hundred (laughs) denarii. Your brother sinning against you. Okay, so it's not a small amount compared to the 10,000 talents it is. That can be a helpful comparison when we're feeling unforgiving. We can return to that point later. All right, so he finds his fellow servant. Now, it's a fellow servant, which means the servant belongs to who? The king. So now you can see that this is a fellow Christian. That's what's particularly in view here. Seizing him, which I don't think the master ever seized him. This guy seizes him, grabs hold of him. He's immediately physically violent. And he began to choke him. (laughs) He was never choked himself 
Uh, you can see a kind of pride behind this anger, can't you? And you can see a sense that he, fe- uh, he has much more pride within him than the king has within himself. It's only uh, pride that allows it you know, to, to lord it over another. So um, he's choking him and he says, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Sound familiar? Of course, Jesus constructed this in parallel. So he falls down. Have patience with me and I will pay you. It's virtually identical. Mm-hmm. He refused, verse 30, and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. So punitive and a kind of... Uh, liquidation to a degree i don't know it'd be an interesting study it's one i've never done it's kind of one of the fascinating questions to me in this text is there a difference between selling him selling him his wife and his children versus imprisoning him here i don't know i don't know so verse 31 which might be act three if you will When his fellow servants, so his fellow Christians, saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Might be analogous to prayer. Then his master summoned him and said, you wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Now, again, the point of Jesus' parable is not that we sympathize with this guy in the least. This guy is a scoundrel and a villain and the lowest of the low. And we are to be as disgusted with him as the fellow servants are disgusted with him. That's the point. Because ultimately the punch of this is don't you dare be that disgusting. If you're that disgusting of a human being, you're not a Christian. And so the father (laughs) will do to you just as you've done unto others. Um, Jesus is going to end this parable on 100 proof law. And he just doesn't care. That's how he's going to do it. Um, and and law with the purpose that why? Well, we would have the hell scared out of us. <laughs> and that we would not be like this, but that we would be tenderhearted and reflective on, upon the debt that we've been forgiven and how we would then forgive others. I mean, that's precisely the rhetorical point and punch of our Lord's parable that ends this section. All right, the irony is because he's a fellow servant and this uh, unforgiving servant didn't have mercy. What else is the uh, what else is the king out? Not just the 10,000 talents, but now his servant who's been thrown in jail. Yeah. Now, I don't think it's a stretch. It may it's not precisely in the text, but I don't think it's a stretch for us to reflect on what prison represents. Just remember how the section began. There's a nice little thematic inclusio here. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to fall away, it would be better for him to have a great millstone. So in effect, this this unforgiveness has resulted in the servant being in 
prison? What if your unforgiveness is precisely what drives a Christian into hell? As he goes, he goes, screw you. Yeah. Yeah, it's worth thinking. I don't think it's, I, don't, I mean, Jesus clearly doesn't spell that out, but it's worth contemplating. So again, verse 33, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debts. See, there's where I speculate that there's a difference. This is somehow a crueler punishment. That's what I wonder. Yeah. Bankruptcy versus bankruptcy. You give up all your assets, you get a fresh start. Yeah. 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 I think you're right. I think, I think the selling is more like into indentured servitude. So the family is going to remain together. It's just like, um, what, it, what it happens? It's like your wages get garnished. <laughs> right. So it's, they'll be allowed to stay together. They'll be ostensibly free, but it's just in this indentured servitude, everything they, that's what I think the selling probably is, which is much less than, Hey, you're going to go in prison and be locked up making license plates for, you know, seven cents a plate, uh, which you're never going to get out from. And it's quite punitive. Their jails don't have cable TV back there. So, so little different. In fact, their jails were kind of like you, you slowly starve to death unless you got friends or family who will come and bring you food. <laughs> There's no taxpayer dollars going to anything other than maybe some moldy bread. Yeah, so I, th- I think so. I mean, the more I look at it, I think, I think that this punishment here in verse 34 is really parallel to the punishment imposed by the unforgiving servant himself uh, in verse 30. And both of those are different than what's what's stated back in verse 25. Okay, and then verse 35, the, the I mean, the real punchline. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Which, of course, if you take this in a vacuum or if you've had sympathy for uh, the unforgiving servant, then you're left going, well, that sounds conditional. That sounds like I have to forgive in order to be forgiven. But that's not, in fact, the case. Um, and that's actually a, a misreading of this text. Because, again, the point of Jesus' rhetoric is precisely that you would be disgusted with this man who was forgiven so much and refused to forgive. That you would be, like, that That as the master imposes a sentence upon him, you'd be like, yes, that's exactly just. That's exactly what he deserves. And then when Jesus says, so also my heavenly father will do to every one of you, if you do not forgive your brother from your heart, you're like, exactly. And I wouldn't have it any other way. That's disgusting what he did and perish the thought that I would ever be so disgusting. Perish the thought that I would ever reflect on the death that has been forgiven me and therefore not forgive another. Like there, there, that's the impact. It's the impact. Okay, that's the design and the rhetoric and the intention of Jesus' preaching. It doesn't have anything to do with conditionality, the way we read it out of context. It has to do with disgust over this man. Um, when, when our unforgiveness is put in story form, it's easy for us to see its ugliness, right? And that's what Jesus is doing. 
Why is he doing this? Quite obviously, so that we don't perish, so that we don't end up in prison until we pay the last penny, uh, which is also the language that Jesus has used for uh, hell elsewhere. Yeah. Okay, did I see a hand? Yes, sir. This yeah. said, said the master did this uh, in anger. Mm-hmm. Now, does that imply that maybe it wasn't a rational act? Oh, I don't. Does it imply that maybe there's, a, there's an angry God somewhere? Oh, there's definitely an angry God. <laughs> and we'll enjoy his anger um, because we agree with his anger. I mean, if you're not, if you look at the world and you're not angry, something wrong with you. And trust, trust me, God's much more angry than we are. Yeah, no, anger is good. This is a, this is a 20th century, no offense to anyone, boomer generation invention that anger is sinful. Nowhere else in the history of Christianity has it ever been dreamed up that anger is sinful? Uh, anger is right. Anger is good. Um, when the circumstances require it. Yeah, absolutely. So, so God is, um, you know, in, in Revelation, this was sort of like my break with 20, 20th century Christianity on anger was in, Revel, in Revelation, I think it's around chapter 18, where God's wrath and Christ is returned and God's wrath is finally executed. And Jesus, who everybody pictures, you know, wearing Birkenstock sandals and blessing everyone with rainbows and puppies is rather on a white horse. And that horse is covered in blood up to its bridle as he goes around executing the enemies of God. And what are the saints doing? They're rejoicing and singing praise. But it's time for evil to be removed. You know, there's a, why do we confess against ourselves every Sunday? Because we hate that part of ourselves. Now, this is where I can actually agree with God that death is good in the sense and welcome death in the sense that I'm going to be forever done with the evil adversary, namely Shadow Rody, you know, the old Adam. And I'm, he's finally going to be dead and buried by God and he's gone forever. I hate that fellow. I don't want anything to do with him. The sooner I can be rid of him, the better. You know, that's why Paul says to, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Oh. So to live, to live as Christ, that's the, the cross and the struggle and uh, the suffering. Yeah, so in the same way we hate the evil that is within us, we hate it within the world. The only nuance there is that like God, who gave his son and his son laid down his life while we were still his enemies, God desires that though we're all his enemies, we would be saved. He desires that all would come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. And so that's the whole gospel. That's the whole thing. That's what we're doing. That's why we're here. That's, you know, but if people, if men won't have it, if they demand to be evil, then there, then there comes a point in time in which God is good. God is loving and God is justly wrathful and wants it gone. And we should join him. in The, um, the Psalms, by the way, that in the 20th century were removed from the Lutheran Bible. Um, which is, or sorry, the Lutheran Bible, the Lutheran hymnal. <laughs> sorry, second, yeah, check, double check that, Victor. <laughs> Not the Lutheran Bible, but the Lutheran hymnal. Why are they removed? Precisely because they're the Psalms that teach you to pray anger. They're the imprecatory Psalms. And again, in the 20th century, it was invented that this was a sin, so we can't have people praying this. I, I kind of prefer the Bible. <laughs> I kind of prefer the whole thing. 
So um, I think that that's, uh, you know, that's what's so difficult for us to wrap our heads around in this, the ideas of disgust, the ideas of wrath, the ideas of these things being good, and that Jesus would tell us a parable that we'd be so disgusted that instead of going, well, gosh, have I have I forgiven everyone enough that he's going to forgive me so that I can somehow balance this out and, be, and to get into heaven? What's the bare minimum forgiveness required so that God will forgive me? I, I mean, completely the wrong directionality, completely the wrong way of wrapping our heads around this. Um, this dude is disgusting, perish the thought that I would be like him. And so how does that function in terms of Peter's question? Hey, should I, should I uh, forgive my brother um, seven times? And Jesus is like, do you want to be disgusting? <laughs> do you, do you want to be like this guy on that? As soon as he's hit the eighth time, you're going to do what this guy did? Of course not. So that's the punch of our Lord's uh, parable. And the way he ends then his section on the church and this particular discourse. Now that's noted again, here's a place where the chapters can and verses can kind of be off because properly speaking, um, this is what shows the end of the discourse. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, chapter 19, verse one, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Okay, so that brings to a close then the parable of the unforgiving servant and this section on the church. Any uh, remaining questions? Yeah, please. Um, a thought on this process of forgiving. I, I'm puzzled sometimes. Do we be asked for forgiveness before we offer it? In other words, in, in this parable, there was always the person asking, forgive my debt, forgive my debt. Can we get ahead of the uh, process and make an error by saying, I forgive you, and it looks like we're lording over them and judging, you know. Oh, yeah, there's part of that. So you have to. I've been forgiven by passive aggressive uh, gospelists when I committed no sin. Yes. (laughs) I don't accept your forgiveness. There's nothing to forgive. You're, so, right. (laughs) In a single day dealings, then this should we, should we wait? you know, uh, and wait for the, the request. It's a great question. Okay, so I, let me let me try to give you just a, 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 the other side of the coin, and I think it'll it'll uh, be be clearer then. All right, we plead guilty before God of all sins. Before the pastor, we go and confess those sins we know and feel in our heart. Um, against our wives, you know, if we've sinned against our wives, then I'm going to confess those particular sins, but I'm not going to offload all my sins on her because she's not my pastor. And that goes real poorly if you try. (laughs) Okay. So again, we plead guilty before God of all sins. And then we deal with those sins in nuanced and specific ways, apologizing to who we need to apologize to confessing to who we need to confess, making amends, etc. Does that kind of make sense? So the parallel to this is going to be before God, we forgive all sins. Okay. So let's, let's say one of my kids, they're little, so it's all innocent and fun right now. I know they're about to get older and it's not going to be so innocent or so fun, but you know, um, sometimes my kids get real grumpy that I've disciplined them. Well, they're in violation of the fourth commandment, not to say anything of the commandment they already broke to get themselves into that. Okay. But, but, you know, they double down and are all grumpy. Now, do I have any problem forgiving them? 
for the sins they've committed against me as their prayer. No, I don't. Before God, they're forgiven. Okay. But does that mean I immediately go swooping in while they're in grump mode and say, I forgive you. I love. No, that's not the right approach. Right. So there's a duality there. Right. There's before God, I forgive all sins. But how am I going to interact with this person in such a way that furthers them? Right. Such a way that I gain my brother, furthers them on their path to heaven, et cetera. Right. So it may be that even though I completely forgive them before God, to their face, I accuse them. Not only did you, you know, hit your brother, but you also yelled at me. <laughs> that has to be addressed. You see, you can, so you kind of see the duality. Um, in the same way we plead guilty of all sins, um, but we only confess them where, you know, where it's right. Um, we forg- I think we forgive all people. And it's kind of a fun exercise to do. If you, you know, if you died this very moment, if you died this very night, are you holding any grudges? Is there anything you wouldn't let go? I think that that's maybe a, an examination worth having. Because especially in that light, you probably want to say, no, I'm not going to hold. You know, would you hold it against that person such that they couldn't get into heaven? No, not like that. I might want them to, you know, face justice or consequences or things to be right or whatever, but that's in God's hands and you commend that into God's hands. Okay. So that's a helpful way of thinking, right? Do you forgive all people at that level? Um, and that could be a real helpful way to think. But now does that mean you go out and immediately extend forgiveness and, you know, warm hugs to everybody? No, that's probably not in their best interest. So that's where you kind of deal with people in the law gospel paradigm and in the vocational paradigm. And that's kind of an art, not a science, but you can only deal with people according to the relationship God has given you. Right. So, um, and there's scriptures that back this out, you know, where, especially where Paul's talking to a pastor and how he's to treat people and, you know, treat men older than yourself as fathers and men your age as brothers. And um, all that's coming from an ordering of creation. You know, if, if my dad um, right now, you know, sins or does something stupid, I don't say, Hey, that's stupid. You shouldn't think that way, but I do speak that way to my son. (laughs) Okay. That's a vocational reality. So you have to, in the first place, who am I to this person? and What can I, and should I say what's proper for me to say or not say, and then what aspect of law gospel, what approach is going to get us where we need to go? No, that's, and that's art, not science, right? But those are the dynamics at play. Okay, I see we're two minutes over, so I apologize for that. Let's uh, let's wrap up the class. I'll hang out if there's anything hanging in the air. I know this can be sensitive stuff, so if this has dredged anything up for you, if you're not getting something, um, if you've been excommunicated, it may be the case that you've been excommunicated wrongly. Okay, <laughs> so an invalid excommunication. All right, so it's a badge of honor for us Lutherans to be excommunicated by the Pope. We'll take it. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, just know my ears open. I'm happy to discuss anything with you if the generality has hit you wrong. Let's close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.